Ladies and gentlemen, warning, spoilers ahead. Can I come with you? Emma, I'm afraid I'm not very good with people. I'm, I'm all right with animals, but people I'm not very good with. I never have been. I don't know why. Good evening and welcome to television. Hey! Hey! Hello there! Hey! Whoa! I'm a Phil Panting! And I'm a Wayne Stellini. Welcome to Fred Watch, where we view and review films, everything from the mainstream to the obscure. So, Philip, what have you been watching since our last podcast? I have been enjoying the first season Mm -hmm. and the latest rendition of RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, hello! Which is now... In the UK. That is correct, yes. yes. I haven't gotten on top of it yet. Definitely do so. So, we're a little late to the party. It's yes. been going on a little while now. So, uh, we're only up to episode two at the moment. Yes. But a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, I- I'm actually liking at the moment. There's <laughs> yeah. more episodes to come, obviously. Yes. But we're liking it more than we actually enjoyed the US okay. season. So, it's getting, even though it's the same formula, same host. It's like a fresh coat of paint. It's like a fresh coat of paint. And to be honest, again, episode two only, but it feels like it's because of the British culture versus the American culture. Yeah, this is true. It makes Ameri- a difference. American culture. And we've talked about this in the past with this podcast. Yeah. Where American humor, American culture is very sort of, you know, top top guy, top dog. Yeah. Uh, everything. The, the guy with the one line is the one that's got everything, is everything. Mm. Whereas for the British, they very much enjoy the underdog. Yeah. I mean, Australians love an underdog who wins. British tend to love an underdog who loses. <laughs> <laughs> so all the contestants there, whereas on the US series, they seem to be a lot more cutthroat and a lot more, yeah. no, 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 this is my time to shine. Already we're seeing in this one a lot of people being, yeah, okay, uh, I'm here to win this thing, but I'm not going to throw someone under the bus to do so. Well, it's that very much British polite mannerisms. That's it. It's funny you mention that about American versus British, I guess, in terms of reality and competition. But I actually found the same thing when watching the American Apprentice that Donald Trump used to host (sighs) and the British version that Alan Sugar hosted. And seeing two British contestants argue Mm. (laughs) compared to two American Mm. contestants argue, worlds apart. Oh, yeah. the, these two, I'm thinking of a particular actually scenario, yeah, but yeah. these two British guys were sort of arguing to save their skin because they wanted to stay in the competition. Mm. They were still being super polite. There were just <laughs> pleases and thank yous yeah. in their argument while they're trying to take one another down. Yeah. I could not believe it. It was so refined and refreshing. It's, that's it. That's it. And like some might look at it and go, oh, well, that's just pomp and ceremony or that's, you know what, but I'd still rather that sort of yeah. care for humanity or care for your fellow. <laughs> Over sort of the... And same with um, Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. Right. Where he used to go in and fix up restaurants. That's right, yes. The British season. Now, a little bit of this, I think, is also just because of funding. Yes. It wasn't funded as well when it was in Britain versus America. Americans have the money. Exactly. But in Britain, you can tell that they want to be like, no, 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 we're actually going in and we're going to try to fix this. We want help. We want help. But, but even the people that don't 
you can tell they're building it for an audience that doesn't want to see drama. They want to see, oh, let's see how this goes. Yes. Let's see the mechanics of this. Let's see how the people... Whereas in America, it is all about that drama and conflict and, conflict and tensions. and ah. yeah. So, yeah, it's just amazing to see the differences. And also very interesting to see RuPaul. Mm-hmm. She seems to be struggling <laughs> with this. She sort of sits there and she, you can tell... The producers and the people yeah. are expecting one thing. Yes. But obviously getting another. Right. But I think one of the other things that's saving that is the fact, even though RuPaul's hosting, the BBC are uh, producing. They're behind it. They're behind it. Yeah. They understand how the Brits work. You they have understand to work you, to your audience. You yeah. don't want as big a drama. No. Unless you're from Essex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. How about you, Wayne? Yeah, well, I finally got round to watching Todd Phillips' Joker. Mm. So, the film that a lot of people were saying we didn't particularly need or want <laughs> is the film that everyone ended up talking about. And I, for one, am somebody who absolutely loved it, loved it, loved it, and thought it was just a masterful work of art. I have yet to see it, and I got told off for not seeing it. Well, it was interesting because when... I was intending to see it, which was chatting to our uh, mutual friend and occasional guest reviewer, Kendall Richardson, about it because she was really looking forward to see it too. And I actually said, I, I wonder how Philip will respond to this film because it is very much an origin slash backstory mm-hmm. of the Joker. And I know that you love the Joker as a character mm-hmm, very much. Mm-hmm. And if we think back to the Batman review that we did, Tim mm. Burton's 1989 film, one of your big issues with the Joker was that we had quite a bit of backstory mm. to him and we understood his process, whereas Todd Phillips' Joker is essentially all backstory. Mm. It is all origin. And so I, I'm curious, when you get around to seeing it, because I, yeah. I know you will. Oh, yeah. I'm curious, and I know that Kendall is too, about what your thoughts are, whether you'll be like, well, look, this is its own world, its own piece. Yes, it works, or... No, these are the rules I'm confining the character of Joker in. They should never be broken yeah, or being extended. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, as you know, I'm all for that. So, for me, it worked really well. And I just could not believe it. It was one of those movies that I loved because it was a throwback to Martin Scorsese's films. Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy, especially two fantastic films Beautiful. that are anti-establishment. And as yep. we know, Joker is all about being anti-establishment. Yep, yep, yep. And Joaquin Phoenix, my goodness, absolutely outstanding. So maybe we'll pause the discussion on Joker. And Philip, when you get around to watching it, <laughs> I want you to bring it to our podcast. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so we've been watching a few things that have been quite diverse and interesting. Glowing reviews from both of us on what we've been watching. But, Philip, what are we reviewing today? Today, we're reviewing the 1967 children's musical, Dr. Doolittle. Tell us about it, Janet. (laughs) Set in early Victorian England, Richard Fleischer's 1967 musical, Dr. Doolittle, follows the exploits of Dr. John Doolittle, Rex Harrison, a self-taught animal doctor who has the extraordinary ability to talk to the animals. He lives with the animals he helps, specifically a talking parrot named Polynesia, Ginny Tyler, who taught him how to talk to the animals to begin with, as well as Chi-Chi the chimpanzee and Jip the dog. Along with Irish animal activist Matthew Mugg, Anthony Newley, schoolboy Tommy Stubbins, William Dix, 
and upper-class lady Emma Fairfax, Samantha Egger. He starts on a quest to meet the legendary giant pink sea snail, with many a song and side quest along the way. It was adapted from the novel series by Hugh Lofting, and primarily fuses three of the books in the series, The Story of Dr. Doolittle, The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle, and Dr. Doolittle's Circus. Wayne. Philip. What were your thoughts on this classic piece? (laughs) Well... I've always have heard of this version of Dr. Doolittle. So the Eddie Murphy movie mm-hmm. that came out in 1998, uh, which really is, I suppose, an adaptation or remake in name only. And just the concept that we've got a doctor who can talk to animals and understand them. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't actually seen this version before. I thought I had when you had first mentioned it last mm-hmm. podcast. And then I had some time to reflect. I go, no, I remember it being played on TV a lot because I, I remember... This image of uh, the pink snail Mm. and playing in the background was the song Talk to the Animals. But that was all I really knew of the film itself. So watching this first time round without any nostalgia or really any preconceived notions of what it would be about and what the adventure of Dr. Doolittle is... It just reminded me that it seemed to sit really well within the musicals of its era. Yeah. And the musicals that I guess came before it. It seems to be one of the more later musicals. For example, we would still get musicals in the late 60s and 70s and 80s. But this sort of musical uh, seemed to be dying off at that stage. It seems to be one of the last of those grand pictures with elaborate stories and set designs and costumes and big numbers and so forth. But overall, I have to admit that I found this rendition of Dr. Doolittle quite flat overall. It Mm -hmm. just seemed to take a long time to not really go anywhere specifically. I had problems with the pacing of it, I think. And whilst I like most of the songs in this, I almost felt like the film would have been a bit punchier and pacier had the songs not even been involved. It was just a straight out telling. Mm. So... Yeah, so this one is a bit of a mixed bag for me. I mm-hmm. I thought that I would actually like it more than I ended up liking it, unfortunately. But, Philip, this is a film from your childhood. Yes. Yeah. So, this film, actually, we had on VCR as a piece that my father had recorded from television. Yes, back in the day. Uh, back in the day. And it's one of those pieces that you can tell he's sort of, you know, uh, sat down and hits pause as the uh, commercials come on. And yes. He, so you get the, the tail end of commercials. <laughs> and I remember that. I remember from this, actually, I remember I, I actually have a Star Wars memory. Of course you uh, do. Of course I do. Uh, take a shot. And it's essentially where one of the adverts, I think it's for KFC, were doing a, a Star Wars uh, tie-in. Yeah. And the advert for that. And I actually had nightmares for years because of that, because they show the part where... Han Solo's frozen in carbonite and then pushed. That is it, confronting. It, well, it's confronting, but also I didn't have full context at that <laughs> age. So yeah. I actually thought it was this person standing there and having a block dropped on them. Thus you get that sort of yeah. imprint thing. And I thought that was horrendous, horrible. Duh. I don't blame you at scary. all. Um, it's, um, and look, Phil, to be perfectly honest, it is scary even with context. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. But um, that's just a little sort of side thing. But that's sort of where this film comes for my sister and I, actually. Mm. Um, we very much loved this film. Yeah. 
Which sort of brings me to now where it's one of these things, you know, don't meet your heroes, don't... (laughs) Oh, okay. It's... There's a lot of nostalgic love for this movie and that hasn't gone away. Yes. I actually watched it relatively recently with Kirsten. Yes, your partner. My partner. And I loved it then. Now watching it with you here, I... You ruined movies for me, Wait, No, but it, it, it just felt... Oh, I, I started gosh. to see, and it hasn't helped, you know, writing up this. Uh, we have a little sort of uh, script that we follow and do, yeah. give us dot points and stuff. You know, pull back the magic curtain. And Well, we view films yeah, critically. That's so, it. you know, so when we in the research that we love, we always that, have to look at it critically. That's it. Yeah. And in the research for that, I've realised this is not especially from the behind-the-scenes stuff, mm. a good movie. But it does that behind-the-scenes stuff ruin the film, though? Like, I mean, one of the things, for example, if we want to think of a film that we reviewed recently, mm. The Wizard of Oz. Mm. Now, we both, before watching it together and reviewing it critically, mm. knew, or at least had a fair understanding yeah. of a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that happened Issues, yeah. and that was going on and a lot of it was not nice was not pleasant but it did not stop us from really enjoying the mm. film and enjoying the performances and the overall production so that's a reflection of strong filmmaking yeah. where the behind the scenes stuff doesn't impact so does the behind the scenes stuff feel impacted here and I because I don't know any of it yeah sure sure so I feel that it does and we'll get into that soon right um, and I feel that it does simply because I've realised I love the story. Yeah. I love the premise. I love the actors. And I love a lot of the scenery. But the whole, all of that is still not strong enough for the fact that, yes, I've realised as an adult, the pacing is not good. Mm. Anytime I've talked about in the past, you know, oh, I go, oh, you know, there's 1950s style musicals. Yeah. This is what I'm envisioning. This is the problems that I envision with the pacing and the fact they don't quite know how to make a story work on film. There are so many little exploits. This, to me, feels like someone wrote a load of little skits. A load of Mm. little... If this was comedy, it'd be a lot of little skits. Someone wrote a lot of little scenes, tiny little scenes, and then wove it together with a a guy who can talk to animals. Yeah, so I'm thinking because, you know, we, we... talked a, a bit and it's come up quite a few times Philip when you talked about you know this particular era we're not too sure how how films come together and so forth I wonder if it's more of the exposure to the films that you have had because in this era if not you know well around this time anyway for example Singing in the Rain came mm. out have you seen that film? No I haven't yeah. you see, and so. I have to say I watched that for the first time only a few years ago so as an adult mm. and fell in love <laughs> with it and it, for me, look, it wasn't a five-star film, mm. but I have to say I could see why people are in love with it. Yeah. Sound of Music's another one. Mm. So it's probably just the films you're exposed to, perhaps. But I would almost say, and I'll probably get uh, lampooned for this. Why but... not? <laughs> <laughs> but I'd say The King and I, yeah. Sound of Music, and Mary Poppins. Yeah. I don't know, they're sort of different eras but still in that this sort of vein that yeah, sort of was, Hollywood mm, musical momentum was yeah. it was part of this momentum to me they still suffer the same problem wow okay but they deal with it 
better. If okay. That makes sense. So to me, I'll still look at Mary Poppins and go, "This is a load of little mm. skits, yes, sewn together with a base storyline." Yeah. But the base storyline is so strong that it absorbs those little skits and actually makes them. Yeah. Uh, I feel like it was all one piece. Okay. I'm now feeling with Doctor Doolittle, sadly, that yeah, you can. I can see the seams. I can see the... Yeah, I still think, because again, we've had this conversation before, and we'll keep on having it, I'm sure. But I still disagree with, I think, your... I I don't feel every single movie obviously fits that thing. That's sort of like sitting there saying, you know, oh, a a, a horror and a a comedy are are, are exactly the same because they're movies. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that. No. I think just within this particular genre... I probably do still disagree with you, Philip, (laughs) but I think what is glaring about Dr. Doolittle and the thing that made me not as involved as I thought it would be, because you know what? I do like musicals from this era. I think they're fun and I think the stories are strong and you're right. They have such phenomenal actors in Mm. them, don't they? This is no exception in that regard in terms of phenomenal acting. But with Dr. Doolittle, it does what movies, I guess some of them back then... Mm. And even contemporary ones do. Yeah. So really what, for lack of a better word, bad musicals do yep. is that this particular film feels like all the scenes, the dialogue, the action and so forth are only there so they can set up a song. Mm. Whereas for me, a good musical and a musical that is successful mm. uses music, uses song and those types of performances to propel the narrative. Whereas this feels like the narrative just exists so we can have a song. And that is my main problem with this film. So I think that's why I wasn't quite drawn to it. No, and and I definitely agree. So for me, I'll I'll quickly talk about the stuff that I really still enjoy. Yeah, of course. So So what what didn't I crap over your childhood? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the songs themselves, I absolutely stand by. I think they're really well done, well written, well performed. Mm. Yeah, a couple of them are slow, but you get that with every musical. You yeah, get the, there's nothing wrong with slow songs. Slow songs it, are beautiful. So the songs themselves, I think, are beautiful. Mm. I still love Talk to the Animals. I think that, to me, is an absolute classic. Yeah. Um, Good song placed badly for me. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> for me, uh, just to... I'm sorry to cut you off there, Phil, mm. but I think that, for example, that sequence there is one of the prime examples of what I'm talking about. Ah, We have an extensive flashback Mm. about Dr. Doolittle and his sister, Sarah. And it seems like it only really exists for two reasons. Some physical comedy, which is either hit or miss. And for me, most of the physical gags are a miss in this film. Yeah. And because it then leads into Talk to the Animals. Other than that, this really lengthy flashback is unnecessary. Yeah. So that's just one of the examples. And it's unfortunate because that song is great. I yeah, do like that it, song. That's yeah. it. Yeah. I really love a lot of the scenery mm. and the scenes of this, which, funnily enough, this movie... So what I was talking about with, you know, seeing the behind-the-scenes stuff, apparently this movie, it ran over budget. It yeah. uh, ran over time. It, it did not make it back at the box office. Mm-hmm. When filming... They brought in all these animals, imported all these animals to Britain from America, who were then all put into quarantine, which they, some reason, didn't expect to happen, (laughs) and then had to go and get more animals locally just to try to 
keep on filming schedule. And then the question is, why didn't they just film well, locally? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Apparently a lot of the local townspeople, so they went to this quaint little town and a lot of the local townspeople got really annoyed because set designers started coming in and just taking down people's aerials <laughs> just so it would look authentic. <laughs> you don't do that. The to- arrogance of ar- Hollywood. <laughs> Oh no, we're making a movie. People will be excited about this. <laughs> oh, it's, it was absolutely ridiculous. And, and all these sort of things sort of happen. And yet, it looked gorgeous. Yeah, it's, it's an aesthetically beautiful film. Yes, aesthetically beautiful. Yeah. I love the actors, but even the actors, I'm reading some stuff here. And reading about them, I've gotten less and less to love them. Oh no. The more you dive into this stuff, the more you realise they're not maybe not great people. Mm. Which I know, in some respects, you should sit there and go, "Okay, someone's personal life should be separate to the art they make." I mean, yes. we've had this whole thing about so many recent celebrities, performers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Separating art and artists. Separating art and artists. But for me, it gets a little muddier when the allegations happen on the set of the right. <laughs> show. Yeah. So, allegedly, and I will throw out allegedly and all that jazz, but um, Anthony Newley, uh, who is, is Jewish, mm-hmm. reported that uh, Rex Harrison continually made anti-Semitic jabs at him. Okay. Predominantly, there was apparently this issue on set about Harrison being annoyed at how much airtime Newley was getting. Right. And... According to Anthony, there was a very strong anti-Semitic vibe going on. It wasn't just, you know, oh, I want all the time. It was, what's he getting all this time for? Wow. Sort of thing. Now, again, that's allegedly, but you sort of sit there and you go, how much do you allow yourself to go, oh, well, that's the time versus Mm. "Mm, this guy was a horrible person. And again, to me, it muddies it when it's on set. If it's just a personal thing, you go, okay, it's the era. It's hard. Well, was it? Because this is the first I'm hearing of this, Philip, so please mm, correct mm, me mm. if I'm going down a different path. Sure, sure, sure. But let's say I'm playing devil's advocate. Mm. Was it based on Anthony's jewellery or was it because Rex Harrison was like, I'm the star and I should have more screen time? Well, it, this I guess is... it depends on what the words actually were. And yeah. The time. We weren't there. If Anthony took it that way, then no. that is absolutely valid. That's it. And, and this is part of the problem as well with history that you're yeah. never 100% sure. Without having talking to them directly, you just won't know. Yeah. I mean, no. at the end of the day, I suppose Mr. Harrison was not very nice to work with for some of for some his people. colleagues. Yeah. And, and I think the reason that that very much sticks out to me mm. is because... Again, if it was something that happened outside of, then again, I'm not going to be a fan of it. But I do feel, you know, it's, oh, okay, he was a racist, great, uh, sort of thing. But for me, being whilst the show was being created, you're creating something for children, you're creating something magical for children. Yeah. Can you not put things aside can you not just yeah. but does it <laughs> i guess the question there is did it translate on screen well this is this is another thing knowing that yeah i do wonder how much that does influence it well this is the problem knowing versus not knowing well not for somebody knowing. who did not know mm. i found no problem whatsoever with the chemistry and the rapport 
between Anthony Newley and Rex Harrison. Mm. I thought they looked like they really got yeah. along. Like I believed the chemistry. I believed it with all of the four principal players yeah. there as well. So I thought that they did really well mm. in that regard. So I suppose even now knowing that, I can put it aside and look at the film as the film and the story yeah. the director wants to tell. Mm. There are films where when actors don't get along, it translates yeah. on screen. If you watch a horrible film called Autumn in New York with Richard Gere and Winona Ryder, you can tell they could not stand each other yeah. and they play love interests. Yeah. But it actually shows on screen. Yeah, There is zero chemistry yeah. there at all. I didn't sense this here. No, that, so, that's... But now knowing this, if I were to watch this film again, I wonder if it would impact. Yeah, definitely. And I'd definitely say one thing that translated on screen because it was written into the script. <laughs> yes. The rampant sexism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A reflection of, of the, the era. era. Yes. That's it. The era, just... the era when the film was made as well as when it descended. Exactly. Yeah. I was just about to say it's copped a double whammy. <laughs> yeah. It. it feels to me like... The writer and director mm. sat there and went, you know what? All this, all this women lib stuff is starting and we could get into that. I just can't be bothered. <laughs> I personally think you give them too much credit to even consider yeah, possibly, women's yeah. lib, to be honest. Yeah, I just think, meh. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, we need a woman in this film. I always think it is to reinforce the heterosexuality and heteronormativity mm. yeah. of the men because... It's a male-dominated, it's a patriarchal mm. world, it's a patriarchal story. Which, interestingly, sorry to cut you off, but interestingly, mm. there were they had originally had two love stories going on, one between Matthew and one between Dr. Doolittle. Yes. With this one woman. They decided to essentially cut both of them. Yes, yeah, sort of except cut for, them as they developed. Yeah, that's it. Except for like little hangovers of that in the songs and a yeah, few the scenes. you get it with Doctor Doolittle a little hangover. Yeah. You sense though there is potential, or at least that it will be pursued between mm. Matthew and herself. You feel that with Emma that she is there as I guess you know the maternal, the domestic figure that needs to be there to look after the men. She says you know she is on board the boat. I think one, it's to pursue Matthew, mm-hmm. and secondly, she says it's yeah. to look after Tommy as well. She does challenge the men's sexism though, or oh, really yeah. Doctor Doolittle sexism more than yeah, anyone yeah. else says about well, you treat me like a man. Yeah, and the funny thing is, he goes. Oh, I intend to. And then we cut to a scene where she's scrubbing the deck and doing Mm. all these things. But when we think about it, and we could argue, yes, men on a ship have to do all the different chores. Mm. But of the three males and one female on board, she tends to do all of the work that we call domestic. As a tiny historical side note, which I'm sure I'm giving them far too much credit for. Yeah, no, go for it. But if you look at it even further... Mm. Dr. Doolittle assumes the role of captain. Yes. Matthew assumes the role of essentially like a botswain. Yeah. Boatswain, whatever. Is that like a first mate? Essentially, yeah. Uh, Second in command-ish. Yeah, okay. I won't go too far into it, but my point is... Yeah. They, that's almost why they're not doing that work <laughs> because they're in the higher command. Absolutely. Thing. So she's being seen as a man. Yeah. But as the lowest version of a man on a ship, the sailor. But also let's not forget, unlike the other two men who accompany Dr. Doolittle, she invited herself. Yes. The encouragement 
and <laughs> really the seal of approval, if you will, from Matthew is absolutely irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, she wins favor by being domestic, by making yeah, them by saying I can cook <laughs> and making seaweed pie. Yeah, Doctor Doolittle is quite reluctant or hesitant yeah. to say, "Well, you made a pie, big deal." It's not even the greatest pie. It's yeah. not the tastiest thing. <laughs> she she makes one seaweed pie and she goes. <laughs> But again, it's, I guess it is, and yeah, I'm probably now going to be defending the writers and, <laughs> and, the, and the context and everything, but I suppose it, it's a shift generally men's territory and mm, women mm. are intrusive and invasive. It's no place for a woman. They say mm. these things mm. essentially, if not word for word. So, I mean, I guess in the context, it does work. Can I forgive the sexism? Yes, it's mm. it's reflected of when the film is set, probably more so than when the film is made. And if anything, she is probably more assertive, I suppose, yeah. than a woman might have the confidence to be. It's, it's one of these weird ones that, on one hand... And again, this is hard to say, too, because this is now sort of going, oh, well, women should be a one-dimensional character. But what I'm driving at is... On one hand, they have her being really assertive and really, you know, go-getting. And then she's complaining that they might end up in the Sahara. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, because women women have to be precious and delicate. Yeah, so so it does have this sort of juxtaposition sort of thing. Yeah. Which I know women can be, but my point is on film. As can men. But on film, especially for this sort of era, it's just really... It's it's heightened. It's heightened and it sticks out like a dog's hind leg. Yeah. But I mean, I think just even saying that Emma's purpose really is to reiterate Mm. the masculinities and heterosexualities of the men in this film, I guess further proven or supported, considering that she's not in the original text. She was created for the film. Mm. They need a woman around. You know, yeah. it's just, if we look at the 1960s Batman TV series, Aunt Harriet is not in the comics, but they needed a woman to enforce the heterosexuality of Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. And yeah. Absolutely silly as we think about it. These yeah. days we're like, okay, guys can live together or work together or yeah. spend lots of time at sea together without a romantic love for yeah. one another. Yeah. But that's her purpose there because she's quite underwritten. She doesn't mm. really come into her own a lot until the second half of the film, I feel, when she's given more to do. Yeah. And even then, it is a bit wishy-washy. Yeah. But look, Samantha Egger, she's beautiful. Oh, and she perform- And she performs beautifully, yeah. too. I think has a lovely singing voice. She does well. There's one set of performers who, again, knowing the backstory, mm. makes it a lot more tragic. Yes. The animals. Automatically, this does not surprise me, considering animal welfare isn't something that was at the forefront back in the day. Do I want to know, though? They killed a giraffe. They didn't. They did. And almost drowned ducks. How do you drown a duck? The ducks had been... Essentially, the ducks had been domesticated so much. And when I say domesticated, I mean... Trained for film. Yeah. They'd forgotten how to swim. Right. And so when they were put on the water, they started to drown and cast and crew had to rush in to save them. Wow. How do you drown a duck? Exactly. It is horrible. And this poor giraffe, though, is it injured that they have to kill it? All it says is one giraffe... I'm reading straight from a source here. One giraffe died on set before insurance had gone into effect. So they don't even talk about why it died or how it died or the poor thing. They're just worried about the insurance. Oh, (laughs) 
it's, yeah, like, look, it doesn't surprise me that, again, the animals weren't, wouldn't have been the greatest looked after. You know, we even see in some zoos around the world today that animals are contained in poor conditions. Mm, mm. And I don't know if you ever have this feeling, Philip, but sometimes even when I go to a bit of a, an open space yeah. range zoo that we have here in Victoria, or just a standard zoo as mm, well, mm. You, and you see these animals behind cages or in these enclosures, and you just think... It's such a shame they're not free, but you then have to wind back and go, okay, well, Australian zoos have a lot of space. There's so much nutrition and protection and the staff are highly trained. Yes, it's not the open world, but there's a lot of space for them to interact. They are probably so much safer here because they're endangered species. Animals in captivity Mm. sometimes are better off because of how we as human beings have had a history more in colonial times not Mm, in mm. indigenous times who did who respected the land and animals and fauna and all of these and flora all of these things we've created this and it just even feeds into making films yeah as well like they're not even treated as respected co-stars no one said we have to look after these animals because they're appearing on film. Like no one even cared. Yeah. So I found it quite interesting. I was thinking about this when the film started and there's this close up of sausages yeah. and bacon being sizzled and I go, okay, that's a little bit weird that Dr. Doolittle would, would eat these yeah. because, you know, you're talking to these animals so they're like people to you. Yeah. And then there's a huge song about vegetarianism yeah. and so forth. I'm like, well, that makes sense then. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, I'm okay with this. Yeah. yeah. And even the little explanation of why it's even there is like, look, I don't get paid. If the butcher's going to give me some meat every now and then, I'm going to take it, all right? Yes, take it, you know, for, I suppose, maybe other animals or for guests. Yeah. And look, that's fine. But you then just feel like, again, that scene is just to justify a song about vegetarianism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, this is what exhausted me about this film, I'm not going to lie. So I think one of the big problems to sort of land on that is the fact that, yes, this movie was based on a handful of books. Yeah. So... They were based on the three books, The Story of Dr. Doolittle, The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle, and Dr. Doolittle's Circus. Yeah. You can almost see those three yeah. books portrayed perfectly there. I almost, I, without having read any of these texts, yeah. I feel already that the film would have been more taut, more enjoyable, better paced and stronger. Mm-hmm. They just picked one of them. Yeah, just pick one. You know, because essentially what we've got like, for example, it's like, okay, the premise is very simple of this film. Yeah. Dr. Doolittle wants to meet a giant snail. Yes. That's it. That, and okay. that's fine. That's fine. So, phase one, he has to pay for the voyage. Yes. Okay, cool. I get that. A lot of time is yeah. devoted to him in a circus that will raise money. Yeah. He is questioned about his sanity. Can he speak to animals? And there's a lengthy courtroom scene, yeah. which demonstrates that fine. There's a lengthy part about... Helping a seal get home. But why? But it's, why? Why do, exactly. we need, why do we need that? And also one of the things that really bugs me about this movie is the inconsistency in terms of communicating with animals. It's great that he learns how to speak in animal tongues, mm. right? But he will have broken animal speech, so to speak. He interchanges English when communicating with them and their own native ones as well. He talks in both. Yeah. So you spent all this time explaining about how you learned to talk to the animals. And then you don't. And then you don't do it 100%. So mm. wouldn't it have been easier just to say, well, I learned how to understand animals and then they hear me and understand or just exclusively speak in their language. Yeah. And there's like only one time that that made 
any sense. Mm. And that's because he has the line. So when he's sort of talking to the whale and could you yes. hit here? And he's sort of doing it in sign language. And then he says, I really must learn to speak whale. Yes. It's the only time that we get this idea of, okay, he hasn't learned everything. Yes. And this is why he's talking in English. But you're right. But then also, why can't a whale understand English when every other animal can? Well, that's it. Like, it's... It, it's it, for me, There's I, no cohesion with it. For me, again, it feels like... Th- this movie's being torn apart in front of me. <laughs> it feels like... And I'm not number, even... And I'm not even sorry. No, <laughs> at this stage. To be honest, neither am I. Um, but it, it, part of it, I think, is because... You can justify, I think, certain bits. Like, when he's talking to the dog and he talks in English. Because we talk to dogs in yes. English and they understand us. Yes, that's fine. But you're right, it's this idea of why do some of them understand, why do some of them not? Is it just a case of like we would in, if talking to someone else, you know, if I was talking to someone in German mm. and then I'd throw in, oh, I see. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just those little expletives yeah. that, that don't need to be translated. Yeah, but I mean, so much focus is his ability yeah. to talk to animals. And let's face it, if you're a child watching this movie... That's the thrill. That's he's, it. He's doing something that we all wish we could do. We could understand our pets, for That's example. It. He's doing that. So find a way that you're going to relay that on screen and stick to it. After saying all of this. Yes. I still prefer this version over the Eddie Murphy version. Right. And I'm saying this because the one tiny fact that moves it one way or the other for me. Yes. Is that. The doctor here, Rex Harrison's doctor, learns how to speak animal. Yes. Eddie Murphy, magically. Yeah, it's kind of like something... Something It's almost like The the Shining. You have it this whole time and then you discover it. It Yeah, that's And that bugs me. That always bugged me about the other, the the Eddie Murphy Mm. 1998 version. Yeah. And... I can't move away from that. My brain will not let me. Even with all these issues, I cannot move away from the fact that they took something that had a a man of science discovering something brand new and amazing Mm. to, oh, magic! Yeah. I have to say, I've seen the Eddie Murphy one a few times. Not recently, mind you, but I remember just really wholeheartedly enjoying it now admittedly i hadn't had this yeah, version to yeah. compare it to but now that i do i would still rather the any Murphy yeah. one what i'm almost thinking is yeah i would like the base storyline of the eddie murphy version mm. with elements of this version yeah the more cohesion of the eddie murphy version because it is more Consistent and, and yeah, well, the storyline works better. Well, by memory, when they're communicating, they're always communicating in English. So at least there's a consistency yeah. of language there. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're communicating in English and then you cut back to... What other people what, can see. Hear. And the, you're seeing them talking in animals. Yeah. Which, which, again, there's consistency at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Again, I a little bit of it is I like the idea that the animals talk like animals. Yes. And that's what everyone hears and sees, including the Doctor. Yeah. And the songs, to me, I I missed the songs when I watched the Mm. Eddie Murphy version. Again, I know it's a different thing, but I still was like, ah, but those songs. Well, again, it's only a remake by name and the fact that he can communicate. Yeah. It doesn't take anything from the books, really. Exactly. And so, to me, that kind of brings me to the new 
version of Doctor Doolittle yeah. that's been announced. Absolutely. We've only seen the trailer. This yes. is with Robert Downey Jr. Yes. I think it kind of does that. I like this trailer. Yeah. So this trailer has, has come out. Uh, it's been out for a while now, but just us looking at it, I guess, a bit yeah. more analytically for the yeah. purpose to include of original remake and now another version yeah. of it. Uh, this seems, I think, to get the balance right. There's only so much you can draw from a trailer. Of course. But it looked beautiful. Mm. There is a consistency with the way the animals are presented. Mm-hmm. And Robert Downey Jr. is such a wonderful yeah. actor, very engaging. Uh, at first, I have to admit, watching this trailer, I wasn't sure about him. Mm-hmm. Just seeing it, I go, really? All the talented British actors <laughs> in the world can get somebody who was actually British? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think um, Robert Downey Jr. has this personality that will shine through so philip maybe some of the issues you had with rex harrison here in terms of his personality on set will not translate with Doolittle. yeah i'm hoping this is third time's a charm like watching the trailer they have the animals talking in english and that i sort of went ah because again i kind of like that everything has to be translated back through the doctor for us i kind of like that just Mm -hmm. because again it, it, it insinuates that animals are dumb unless they're speaking English right. to me. If if it insinuates that their language... It, to me, it's kind of... It's almost reminiscent of having a movie where there are Germans yeah. or, or Russians and they're speaking broad English just because, oh, it's, it's a Western audience. They, 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 yeah. Where I've always found more respectful when they have the them speak their mother language the mother tongue and it's translated as, as subtitles yeah you yeah. might sit there and go, oh bloody subtitles but to me it's more respectful yeah. of the culture it's more yeah. respectful of the well i, I agree with you because i love sub- i don't have a problem with subtitles at yeah. all i do wonder if for example with say Doolittle, and you know in the case of the eddie murphy version mm. rex harrison version as well the common language of english is used almost like as a substitute of subtitles. Mm. So I have seen some films, for example, and some TV shows that are set outside of the English language. And you will see people speaking in, say, native tongue, and then it will cut to them speaking in English. But we understand that's just a translation, for example. So not subtitles per se, but... It will be like, oh, okay, this is what they're saying. It's in English, so we understand it. We get that they're actually speaking their native tongue. Yeah. I wonder if it's something like that. Maybe, maybe. maybe. I, I Yeah, and I can kind of appreciate that too. Yeah. This one, I will say, the trailer, the I will admit the graphics look a bit so-so for me. Do little. Yeah, of this new, new yeah. version. Yeah. But after saying that, I'd much rather dodgy graphics than Rex Harrison riding a giraffe <laughs> that we find out possibly died. I just, I, when that when that happened, you and I just sort of looked at one another. I was like, I've never seen anyone ride. I don't actually think I've ever seen anyone no. ride a giraffe before. No. And he legitimately is. It's not. No. You know, there's a close up, and you think, oh, okay, this is going to be a puppet. Or, yeah. No, it is a legitimate giraffe. No, I'm just sitting on a giraffe. Absolutely, because I will say that when they use puppetry or you know artificial animals. Mm. 
you can tell. You can now, tell. I'm not someone who will bag a movie for that. I've always said, yeah. if you make me believe what I am seeing, even if I deep down in the back of my mind, no, mm. it, it's not real or there's green screen or whatever. We've seen enough Muppet movies to be yeah, happy with Exactly. Puppets. If the story is strong, you can tell. Exactly. Now, this story is a different mm. thing, but mm. I think they kind of do it well enough. Mm. I did have issues, admittedly, with the pink snail. I didn't yeah. think it looked that great, to be honest. Yeah, no. I just, yeah, wasn't too sure about that pink snail. I just thought, yeah. well, he's the great Grand Peason. That's, that's what you what, came up yeah, with. That's and I think that really comes down to the fact that this movie was plagued with uh, uh, weather issues. And mm. they were to- apparently told that the British town they were going to film in struggles with summer rain. And they're like, it's summer. What's it going to do? Okay, that's an uh, American point of view. They've never been yeah, to the UK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they had trouble with the rain. Mm. There were issues with... You know, uh, tropical storms in the uh, tropical area they filmed in. Yeah. They're just constant uh, issues. They, were, they they spent, I think it was like three times their budget to put this thing on. Yeah. Look, I have to be honest, none of these sort of behind the scenes stuff impacted the film for me. Look, I couldn't tell, mm. to be honest. So... I think you can once you start looking at things like the giant snail and you start yeah. looking at... Well, I just figured the giant snail didn't look that great just because it didn't look that great, mm. to be perfectly honest. True. They were like, well, this is the, the skill level. It's in the, the 60s. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and maybe it was like suitable for them for at the time. But yeah. I don't know, I've seen films in that era and so forth that have sort of done better with perhaps less. Yeah. Again, if we look at... Wizard of Oz yeah. 30 years earlier yeah. what it had done and it had production problems and it used a lot of artificial things and, and all of these uh, different elements to create magic it just did it so much more successfully so maybe it just had a much stronger team mm. I suppose but yeah for this like aesthetically it was fine and I think that's why I'm I'm okay with uh, a lot of the, the artificial stuff and it it looked look it looked beautiful. The music by themselves were really nice, but just the way that it balanced with the narrative, like I I, I can't really get away from that. Yeah, I I think I have to agree. Yeah, predominantly. Mm. A little tiny trivia bit that doesn't sort of fit anywhere else that I thought you might like, Wayne. Go for it. The film is shown to the students of Springfield Elementary School in the Simpsons episode Q Detective, which aired October fourth, two thousand fifteen. <laughs> Just a little Simpsons bit I thought you might like. I kind of want to see that just to see whether they do a like, small parody of it or whether it's just you hear the audio in the background and how they actually handled that. Why did they pick such an obscure film? Yes, okay. Well, not that obscure. I suppose it's a oh, childhood yeah. film for many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, if it's an episode that aired in 2015, you say Dr. Doolittle, most are going to think most because yep. the Eddie Murphy version yep. and love it. So I think this would be a bit of an oddity. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but... After all that, yes. final thoughts and score out of five. Well, I'm actually glad that I have seen this film because I do like most musicals from this era and I think they come across quite successfully. Dr. Doolittle, however, is below par for me. I think it is aesthetically beautiful. It is well performed. I particularly loved Anthony Newley. Mm-hmm. As Matthew, I thought he was quite charming yes. as, as our Irishman there. Yep. He pretty much opens the film with, with the song and he is prominent throughout mm. the film. Sometimes does get long stretches of scenes without Dr. Doolittle. So yeah. he is a really strong figure who is in the forefront. He is our guide yes. through this world. And we get that because he first meets Tommy and tells him who 
John Doolittle is. And- Which, as a side note, how long has Tommy lived in this place? How does he not <laughs> know who the eccentric uh, veterinarian is? But anyway. Well, maybe Tommy's never had a pet who's been yeah. sick because, you know, he does come across as a duck that he feels sorry for yeah, and wants to yeah. protect it. And Tommy is actually a lovely character. Again, Gorgeous. you know, isn't really du- given much to do, but I guess... <laughs> children in films like this and of this era weren't really but you know he's a, he's a charming young man yeah, I yeah. think but yeah Anthony Newley for me was an absolute standout I think Rex Harrison played Dr. Doolittle with confidence yes. you can see this strong theatre background in him yes. coming through I think he really committed to the role he's a uh, very strong actor regardless yes. of anything else I've said he's an amazing yes. actor I have to put all that aside and just appreciate the performance that he's given he does it really well he has fun with it yeah. I, think. I think that it was a film that he may have I've enjoyed Mm. making. I got that sense. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, production problems don't really come through on the film, but my issue is the way that the film is structured. The story is very simple, Yeah. but it seems in terms of the dialogue and action scenes that all they exist for is not for a narrative, but to introduce songs. Yeah. And I have a huge problem with that because as I've said, musicals should include songs to advance the narrative, not have a narrative to advance or introduce songs. Mm. It takes quite a while to get where it's going and in the end it is a bit of an anticlimax for me. So it's Dr. Doolittle by name and by nature as well. <laughs> Dr. Doolittle does very little. But there are enough positives to draw from it to say that, look, it is actually worth a look. It's two and a half out of five from me. Yeah. Philip. Well, definitely it's difficult to come up with a score for me on this one. Mm. Because, again, I'm fighting a lot of nostalgia. I love the songs. I love the feeling of childhood I get with this. We watched that recorded video time and time again as children i can remember half the adverts that were dog tailing each bit gorgeous i didn't realize until i got this dvd version of it i didn't realize there was an intermission because obviously they cut that out of the tv version exactly but it definitely falls flat on a lot of things and i think you i agree with you when you say that It feels like it was built for the music. Mm. Um, There is actually a point uh, in the the research that I found that they had a really heavy media blitz and they're trying to sell toys and uh, 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 soundtracks. Yeah. And all this paraphernalia to go with it. And because it flopped so hard, that actually made studios not worry or not want to push Merchandise. uh, uh, merchandise as hard, which is the sole reason that George Lucas was able to later keep and retain the merchandising rights. Because no one saw the value. No one saw the value because of this movie, how hard it flopped in its merchandising. Yeah. People went, oh, well, merchandising's a, a, a gimmick that's useless. It's no good. Yeah. So that, to me, is an absolutely amazing uh, uh, sort of a thread to one of my favorite movies of all time and a movie and, uh, that you have to bring up in every single podcast you can find a link my course, friend can't of course you? it's uh, seven degrees of star wars um, <laughs> this is why we haven't reviewed star wars we don't need to, no, don't need to. No, that's it. but end of the day this struggle leads me to say that a nostalgia score mm-hmm. give this five out of five right but a critical score so the real score Philip. the real score i have to give Two out of five. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It just it, it it doesn't stand up the test of time. It is definitely something I think that people 
people who enjoy musicals, mm-hmm. music, these musical movies, definitely worth a watch. Is it worth showing to your kids these days? Definitely not. Mm. Is it worth breaking out the uh, a, a record of it? <laughs> sure, but just enjoy the one, one or two songs. Yeah. But Wayne. Yes. After this miserable <laughs> uh, killing of my childhood. Yes, yes. <laughs> what do you have in store for us next time? Well, Philip, next time we are going to go further back in time <laughs> from this film. So a film that was made about 30 years beforehand as well. It's celebrating its 80th anniversary. It was for a really long time considered the greatest film ever made and definitely one of them. But a contemporary lens has people looking at it a lot more critically. I think it's a masterpiece and I'm curious as to what you will think of Gone with the Wind. So we are going to experience this epic and what was for the longest time the most successful film ever made. (laughs) Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I know of that. (laughs) Well, one of the greatest lines in in cinema history. Awesome. Yeah. I I can't wait to see it. I've not yet seen it, so can't wait. Well, I look forward to bringing it to Fred Watch next time. Until then, I've been a Wayne Stellini. And I've been a Philip Hunting. And and you've you've just experienced Fred Watch. Cue music. Dun, 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 dun. Cut that out, fella. Cut it out. <laughs> and scene. Blooper reel. G'day! Hello! Hello! Hey! hey. Whoa. Whoa! I'm Philip Hunting! And I'm Wayne Stellini, and welcome to Fred Watch, where we review and... Oh, fuck me, sorry. <laughs> Richard Fleischer. Fleischer? Fleischer, Fleischer, Richard Fleischer, Rex Harrison, Ginny Tyler, Anthony Newley, William Dix, Samantha Edgar. Yeah, too easy. Endless <clears throat> last words, my friend. Yep. Oh, no, no, no. But yeah, but yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Fleischer. Fleischer? I think it's Fleischer. Fleischer, Fleischer. Take one. Set in... <clears throat> Take two. Set in the early Victorian... Eng- oh, that's why I've left that out. Derp. Take three. Set in early Victorian England, Richard Fleischer... Ah, okay. One last time. Not one last time. This is going to be horrible. Don't say things like that. They make me laugh. (laughs) Take four. Set in early Victorian England, Richard Fleischer's 1967 musical, Dr. Doolittle, follows the exploits of Dr. John Doolittle. Take five. Set in early Victorian England, Richard Fleischer's 1967 musical Dr. Doolittle follows the exploits of Dr. John Doolittle, Richard Harrison. Richard Rex. (laughs) Take six. Set in early Victorian England, Richard Fleischer's... What are you doing? Sorry, was... Oh, sorry for the stra- I was just distracted. I was just looking looking up the movie on Wikipedia. Yeah, no, that's right. I was just distracted. Sorry. No, that's okay. No, I just pulled up the cast list so I can just yeah, cool, go cool, back cool. and forth. <clears throat> Take seven. 
Set in early Victorian England. Take eight. He lives with the animals he helps. Specifically... Specifically. Take nine. He lives with the animals he helps. Specifically, a talking parrot called Polynesia. Take ten. Along with Irish animal activist Matthew Mugg, Anthony Newley, schoolboy Tommy Stubbins, William Dix, and upper-class lady Emma... Take eleven. Along with Irish animal activist Matthew Mugg, Anthony Newley, schoolboy Timmy... Tommy... Take 12. Along with animal activist... Take 13. Along with Irish animal activist Matthew Mugg, Anthony Newley, schoolboy Tom... Just going to make that slightly bigger. Mm -hmm. Because I know what it is. My eyes are darting around to every word but... Take 14. Along with... Take 15. Along with Irish animal activist Mug Mug Problem is I have your voice in my head going, take three. <laughs> take five. Philip. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I had my voice in my head going, take seven. Take mm. eight. Yep. <clears throat> Are you just secretly trying to beat your 25-take record? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> not at all. Thank As the editor, thank, thank you. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Take 16. Along with Irish animal activist Matthew Mugg, Anthony Newley, schoolboy Tom Stubbins... Take 17. Along with Irish animal activist Matthew Mugg, Anthony Newley, schoolboy Tommy Stubbins, William Dix... And upper-class lady Emma Fairfax, Samantha Agar. He starts on a quest to meet the legendary giant pink sea snail. And with many a song and side quest along along the way. And (laughs) so close yes, so far. Does he want to meet or discover the snail? Discover. Meet, because it's a person to him. It's a a living... It's to meet. Okay. Take 18. Along with Irish animal activist Matthew Mugg, Anthony Newley, schoolboy Tommy Stubbins, William Dix, and upper-class lady Emily... Take 19. It was adapted from the novel series by Hugh Lofting and primarily fuses... Lofting, yeah. Yeah. That's right, fuses through me. Yeah, I, I, thought, I keep going to write focuses. Oh, no, that's what I thought it was supposed oh, we, to be. And yeah, then I was no, just like, no, that's is, not right. I see what you... Mm. Oh, I kept reading it. So a film that was made about 30 years beforehand as well. It is celebrating its... 90... Let me check. What are you doing that for? Slow clap, good work. 80... Well, I didn't want to sound like a doofus. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. I've not yet seen it, so can't wait. Yeah, a classic. And then do I go? Yeah. Okay, great.